Thank you, Laura. Worship team. Embrace all this worship that we just uh, proclaimed to the Lord, right? E embrace the truth of it. Uh, you, know, I, you know, sometimes Laura and I and our preparations for Sunday morning, um, it just doesn't go as planned. If most, you know, if everything goes as planned, then we've got, you know, everything planned out by Thursday and it looking good. And I know what I'm going to preach and she knows what she's going to sing. And then other Sunday, other weeks, it's, it's just doesn't work that way. So, uh, anyway, so this is one of those weeks and, but, uh, we've had enough of those weeks that we also trust that the Holy Spirit, you know, steps in and he is working behind the scenes, even though, you know, we're not able to maybe plan like we normally do. Uh, God steps in and, uh, and makes it, uh, it makes it work. And so as I was reflecting uh, this morning in worship uh, and all the songs that we just sang about God's amazing grace and his ability to redeem sinful humanity, right? That he can redeem us and our junk, right? And uh, I was like, yes, you know, this is fitting. We, we need to start here uh, because in the message this morning, we're going to dive, kind of take the deep dive into sin for a little bit, which isn't fun. Uh, and so for us as believers, as Christians, to know at the outset of a message on sin that uh, we have this great rede redeemer. Um, so that we... Uh, don't have to fall into despair when we begin to talk about our own sin and the struggle that uh, that, that creates for us, right? Amen? Amen. Sin, it, it's a reality, right? Uh, it's part of our life, right? As, as much as we wish that, you know, that uh, when we came to Christ, that it would just be done, right? <laughs> kind of be eliminated from our life, right? That we could just, okay, now from now on, I'm always going to do the right thing. I'm always going to be righteous. I'm always going to obey. I'm always going to, you know, follow exactly when God tells me where to go. All this, you know, I, we wish, right, that that was reality, but we know it's not. Uh, the challenge of the Christian life is that maybe, you know, <laughs> you know, before we came to Christ, we just suffered the consequences of sin, after we come to Christ, we don't just suffer the consequences of sin because oftentimes that's still there, thankfully, not eternally. But now we have to suffer with sin itself. We have to suffer, suffer with the battle of that, uh, of doing the things that we don't want to do. And the struggle, the Sometimes the despair, sometimes the frustration, the pain that our sin causes. Uh, interesting about sin, right? There's some sins that we just kind of fall into in life, right? It's just like we are living our life and, and then all of a sudden kind of a temptation comes up and we're like, oh, and we, and, and we kind of fall into it, stumble, whoops, oh, I didn't see that coming kind of thing, uh, and whatever. Right? There's that kind of sin, right? It just kind of shows up and happens. But then there's another kind of sin, right? Uh, it's the sin that, like, has haunted us our whole life. You know, the, the sin that just keeps coming back over and over again. No matter how much we try to put it down, uh, even in seasons when sometimes we feel like, oh, I, I finally got it, I'm top of it, right? It's been months now, and I, I haven't fallen into that. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's, it's back. You know, sin's 
that recur, it's kind of, as I've reflected on that, I, I think oftentimes our recurring sins have their root in our childhood. It's sins that first kind of showed their face when we were just kids. Maybe because, you know, of a personality flaw, right? You know, maybe just something that, you know, kind of just are the way we view the world or kind of our personality. It just, you know, we, it just, that's a tendency for us, right? It's just a sin that just kind of trips us up. Sometimes those recurring sins are, have been brought about or at least initially ignited by the pain of growing up. Maybe certain things that happen to us that, that hurt. And so it ignited in us a coping mechanism that's not healthy in order to try to protect ourselves from that pain again. You know, sins like lust, like lying and deceiving, right? Selfishness, arrogance, stubbornness. Pride, a lot of different types of sins that can be the recurring type. A preteen glance at a pornographic picture can plant a seed of lust in us. Fear of punishment could spark a lie that burns deception deep into our heart. A parent's careless word of criticism stirs an obsession with perfection. Or perhaps divorced parents overindulging their child and unwittingly birth an insatiable narcissism. What is your recurring sin? What is that sin that just keeps showing up over and over again. Probably multiple of them, right? Too easy often to list those. I know for me, one of mine is stubbornness. Maybe you wouldn't recognize that in me, but I am stubborn. <laughs> My wife, she never knew that about me. I, it's, it's true, honey. It's a stubbornness that can stir in me an aggressiveness in debate. Can shut down others. And, you know, just the arrogance of my opinion is right. <laughs> yeah. What's your sin? I think Abraham... I think his recurring sin is lying and deception. Genesis chapter 20, if you want to turn there, I'm going to read the whole chapter with us for this this morning. Genesis 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned to Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. 
But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I, do not let, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pay for you, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return or know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his serv- all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my king- kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abraham's fear ignites... This sin of deception. Here he lies again, by the way, about Sarah being his sister in order to save his own skin. Now, perhaps it's understandable. I mean, think about it. Like, Abraham left his family, like the land of his forefathers, right? God said, hey, come out of there and go into this new place, right? So, you know, in, that, in, that, in those days, that was your protection, right? That was your security, is to have family and friends around you who knew you and who would come to your defense. And so maybe it makes some sense that this was the stumbling block for Abraham, that as he goes into this new land, that he would be a little bit fearful, and so he's like looking for some way to get an edge so that he can protect his life. Understandable or not, it is still a sin. Right? I mean, we may have really good excuses for our sin, but it's still sin. And I don't think 
Not only is this the not the first, and not only is this not the first time Abraham does it in recorded history. Remember in Genesis chapter 12, right after receiving that call to go into the land of Canaan, right? What does Abraham do? He goes down to Egypt, first thing it lies, right? And so we've already seen this before, but I don't think it's just two times. Right? I don't think it's just like, okay, these are the only two times that Abraham fell into this lie. I, I think this is a recurring sin for Abraham. Now, maybe this is a bit of a speculation, because certainly Scripture doesn't teach much about Abraham's upbringing and his childhood. But I actually don't think this sin was one that started when he was 75 years old and left to go into the promised land. I, I, I think this sin has probably been with him his whole life. I think humanity, even though there's 4,000 years removed between Abraham and us today, humanity hasn't really changed that much. We have sins that just continue to come back, and, and I think this is likely Abraham's recurring sin that probably started in childhood. Maybe it's a personality thing. Maybe it was some painful event that he had as a kid or a couple of them. We don't know. But the reality is, is he's done this over and over again, at least twice. But I think, look at verse 13. I think there's, I think it's a bunch more times. In verse 13, he says, and when God caused, this is Abraham. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. How many places have they been to? Is it likely, I think? that this lie has been repeated over and over again, and we only know about two of them. <laughs> and this is the nature, I think, of recurring sins, that it's oftentimes in the times of tension and fear that those recurring sins just fall out. <laughs> We run back to them like a comfy couch, right? <laughs> comfy couch, or maybe, you know, you got a dog or a cat that's really snuggly, right? When things are going bad, where do you want to be? Yeah, you want to be in that snuggly couch with the dog or cat snuggling, right, and petting them, right? I mean, it's like, this is my happy place. Let me just, you know, kind of forget about everything else. We, we do that with sins. There's some sin, this recurring sin that sometimes we actually go back to it every time because as soon as we face any kind of tension, like, ah, and then we run back to that sin. This is the way I've done it before. It seems to have helped me, and we just fall into it over and over. We've all experienced this, right? We've all experienced the consequences of our own sin. I've experienced the loss of friendships over my stubbornness. Perhaps even worse is I've experienced the pain of hurting a friend who remains through my stubbornness. Hurting my family. We've all experienced the pain, and, and this is the reality, I think, of this story, is that we see that the pain and the suffering and the impact of sin is not just internal. It's not just on us. So often, it also impacts our community, our family, our friends, and of course, it's always those who are closest to us who get hurt the most by our sin. It, it's illogical. 
You would think that it would be those closest to us we tried to protect and shelter from our sin, but it's the exact opposite. God has made us to be communal beings. We're meant to be in community. We certainly have that in family, but we also have that in church. And the reality is that our sin doesn't just impact us, doesn't just impact our family and friends, it oftentimes impacts our church as well. As we interact together, we can really hurt each other. We all have heard stories of some that have left the church completely because of the sin, the impact of sin in a previous church. Others that maybe have come to this church because of another church where they experienced sin and the impact. Maybe even you've experienced it in this church. We certainly can praise the Lord that our sin no longer separates us from God. We can praise the Lord for that amazing grace that even though we continue to sin, that our sin is forgiven. And that someday when we die, we will be resurrected from the dead and spend eternity in the kingdom of God, enjoying finally the perfection that we have always longed for. But while here, we will continue to wrestle with sin. We see Sarah in this story put in harm's way because of Abraham's sin, because of Abraham's weakness, his issue. He puts Sarah in a compromising position, in a position of great danger, danger of one maybe being married to a pagan king. Second, uh, the danger of being unfaithful to her husband. And finally, the danger of forfeiting the amazing promise of God. Now, certainly, Sarah isn't totally innocent in this. She went along with her husband's plan. But I think it's safe to say that if it wasn't for Abraham's weaknesses in this regard, she would not be in the compromising position that she's in. But despite Abraham's sin, God steps in and protects her. Isn't that amazing? When was the last time you reflected on how your sin has and is currently impacting the lives of those in your family and church community? Is our critical spirit tearing down the ones we love, for example? Or is, is our lust warping our view and causing us to see others as mere objects? Is our insatiable desire to be in the know drawing others into destructive gossip? Are others needlessly suffering because we are so self-absorbed that we're oblivious to their plight. 
How is your sin impacting others? Praise God that he often protects others from the full force of the consequences of our sin. But let us not run past this reality that reflecting on the pain that our loved ones endure because of our failures should be a great motivator for us to deal with sin. May we remove from our vocabulary, may we remove from our thought process, this is just the way I am. In light of Jesus, we all can change. A less common consequence of our sin, but yet still painful, is the impact that sin has on our witness for Christ. You know, the world is always watching us, right? Whether you realize it or not, like the world is watching. Your non-Christian friends that you work with, that your neighbors with, that are in your family, they are watching you. They're paying attention. They're, they're, they're looking to see if there's any difference in you from their own life or from other religious people that they know. They're watching. They're observing. The reality is, whether we think about it or not, whether we're purposeful about it or not, we are always witnessing to something. We're always giving witness either to Christ and to our, or to our own you know, arrogance, our own pride. Or maybe our own sin. Amazing, but true. Our sin does not just impact those around us and also uh, our family and friends, but also impacts the world around us. It should be no surprise to us that when our sin overflows into the world and impacts a non-Christian significantly, that that person is going to be really upset with us. Not only because our sin has impacted them, but because, hey, we're supposed to be Christians. We're supposed to be moral. We're supposed to be the ones living righteously. And now we've done something horrible, and and now that's impacting them. We're going to experience their wrath. We see this with Abimelech. His very, his lineage, which, I mean, like, his kids, like, is threatened as a result of Abraham's sin. But more than that, his very life is hanging in the balance. Not because of anything he has done, per se, but because Abraham has a weakness and a sin that he can't get over. Abimelech did what he normally would do in this situation. This was a culturally accepted practice of taking a man's sister and adding him to his harem. Why? Because maybe there was a covenant that was being developed between him and Abraham. So that's what you do. Hey, you know, I want you to marry my sister. I'll marry your sister kind of thing. Right? You figure it out, right? This was, except, you know, Abimelech was not like doing anything more than what he would normally have done in this situation. And yet, he wakes to a dream from the God of the universe threatening his life. The reality is the world actually knows pretty well what right and wrong is. 
You know, well, sometimes we can get in our mind, well, you know, they're not Christians, so they really don't know what right and wrong is. Oh, no, actually, deep down inside, they do know. God has given us all that sense of morality. We should not be surprised when unbelievers challenge us in our sin. Just because they don't know Jesus doesn't mean that they don't know right and wrong. Indeed, there are some occasions, like this one in Genesis 20, where those of the world behave more righteously than God's children. Too often, the world is more moral than we are. Too often, the world is able to get along better than the church can. How many divisions do we need to have? It's a valid criticism from the world. Are you, are you Christians? You can't even, you got, how many denominations you got? Like 10,000 or whatever? I mean, seriously, you can't even get along about what you believe about Jesus. Too often, the world is more generous than we as Christians. The giving in church has been dropping for decades now. The amount of charitable contribution from Christians is now under 5%. I think it's under 3%. It's, it's horrible in America. How can that possibly be? Now, I'm not saying the world gives a ton either, but at times, when we look around, who are the ones who give the most? Who are the most generous people you know? Who are the ones that don't even think a second about handing a $10 bill to somebody on the street? Sometimes the world cares more about the homeless, cares more about the oppressed, about immigrants, about orphans and widows. Hmm. What sin? in your life is tainting your witness? Where in your world are unbelievers living more morally than you are? This should to some extent embarrass us as Christians in those times when we see the reality. But it also should motivate us. If we are to reflect Christ, if, if he is all who he says he is, and we really believe that, if we, if we really are, are, are just so amazed at what he's done for us, if he really is that great, then that should be a powerful motivator for us to be sure to reflect him well, to reflect him right, that the world would see certainly maybe a tainted, a blurred image of him, but at least they'd see him. Praise the Lord 
for his amazing grace. Amen. Knowing the pain and suffering that comes from our sin, how it impacts us personally, but also how it impacts others. It's not easy to reflect on, but we need to take a little bit of time, at least on occasion. But again, our sin is forgiven. And our future is secure. No matter how many people have been negatively impacted by our sin, no matter how horrible a witness we have been for Christ, we are still forgiven. And because we're still forgiven, that means we don't crawl up, curl up in a ball in despair. We don't have to go to our comfy couch. We don't have to grab our comfy pet and pet our pet and snuggle with it because we're like, oh my gosh, I'm so horrible. We don't have to do that because we know we have eternity. We know that we have been forgiven. We know that God loves us just as we are. But more powerful than that, amazingly true, is that God can even use our sin to bring about glory for his name and to bless us. Consider the end of this amazing chapter. You guys, this is like a, this is, it's surreal. I almost called this, didn't I? I tell, Laura can, can confirm this. I almost called this, uh, titled this message, Opposites Day. So if you don't know SpongeBob, maybe you don't know what that means, but Opposite Day means that everything you say, it's actually the opposite. So, hey, let's get together means, no, I don't really want to get together with you, right? So uh, everything is opposite, right? Because this chapter is so backwards, Everything is backwards about it. Who is the moral one? It's the pagan king. Who's the unrighteous one? It's the prophet of God. What is going on? How could this be, right? What is, what is happening in this chapter? Now, God's communication. How does he communicate? Does he communicate to Abraham? Not directly, he instead communicates to the pagan king. Wait a, wait a second, that's not how this works. God speaks to his prophet, who prophet then prophesies to the pagan king, and the pagan goes, oh no, I don't want to die, help me, help me. Right, now, that's how it's supposed to happen. But it's the exact opposite. Instead, God shows up, and he speaks to the pagan king. And the pagan goes, oh no, I don't want that. And then he gives God's word to Abraham. It's opposite. This is backwards. This is upside down. Notice this. Oh, my God. Abimelech says when God's like, hey, I'm going to wipe you out. He says, will you destroy an innocent people? Does that remind you of anything? Two chapters before, Abraham's hanging out with God. Hey, God, what's up? And they're looking over Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does Abraham ask him? Will you destroy the innocent along with the guilty? But wait a second, this is reversed now. Now the pagan king is proclaiming his innocence. Are you going to wipe me out with the, the unrighteous? I mean, come on, wait a second, I'm innocent here. Also, notice this, this irony. At the end, we see that God has closed up the womb of Abimelech's wife and his female servants. Now, Abraham for 25 years, has been praying, God, 
will you open my wife's womb so that we can have this promised child? And that prayer has gone unanswered for 25 years. <laughs> and then Abraham prays for Abimelech and God responds immediately. Now, the good news is, is the next chapter, <laughs> we get Isaac. But do you see that? Like, this is all backwards. This is all upside down. What is going on? But this is the reality of sin. And even in the midst of everything being upside down, God still works. Despite Abraham's recurring sin, putting himself, his wife, and his neighbor in danger, God steps in with abundant grace. He protects Sarah. He saves the life of Abimelech. And he still calls Abraham his prophet. He still listens to Abraham's prayer at the end of the chapter. And he also just pours out a worldly blessings in his lap when he leaves Gerar. What? I mean, this is amazing. But this is the God we have. A God who has abundant grace. And even when our sin has turned the world upside down and we're not living the way that we know we should, he is still able to step in and bless us. He's still able to step in and use the events, even using our sin, to bring about glory for his name. God can and does redeem our sin and failure. Genesis 50, verse 20, was one of the, the, the verses that totally transformed my perspective. I, I don't know about you. We, we've, I've talked about this too much recently, but it's just, it's one of those, it just keeps coming up. But, you know, I, you know we as parents, and I have more parents I talk to, you know, we get, there, we get this, right? We, we're all in the same boat, it feels like, you know? But, uh, you know, you, you, you feel like you've really messed things up, and you don't fully realize how messed that up, how messed you, how, how much you messed up your kids until they get to be adults, right? <laughs> and you're like, oh my gosh, what did I do? Right? Um, but, but God's amazing. He's good. He's gracious, right? And, and, and so one of the, when I was wrestling with this, God brought me this verse, and I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus, because it just relieved me of that guilt and that shame that I continue to cover, to, to, to live with, right? And said, no, 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 wait a second. Do not take this from me, God says. Because listen to this. This is verse, chapter 50 of Genesis, verse 20. Okay, like, we're going to get to Joseph. This is the end. It's going to be great. We're gonna, I'm going to preach a message before I even get there. Anyway, so we, it was amazing. Like, I, Joseph, you know, gets sold by his brothers. Like, sin. Like, really bad stuff, right? And all of that comes after that. And then in the end, right, you know, they all show up in Egypt, and they all get saved, and everything is great. And I know you know this verse, but I got to read it. As for you, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant evil against me. You purposely were sinning against me, but God meant it for good. Why? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is unbelievable truth that even our sin, God can use and turn it around and use it to save lives. People, we as Christians should be aware and sensitive to our sin. We need to recognize that it's there and the impact it has on others and the impact it has on our witness. And that, those, those factors, those painful factors should motivate us to seek greater righteousness. But we should never fall into despair 
There are too many Christians who are curled up in a ball on their comfy couch thinking that Jesus cannot use them because they are sinners. Hey, God knew you were a sinner already. He knew that you would continue to sin. This is not going to disrupt his plan. All right, worship team, come on up. I've got a couple of thoughts to to close with here. And um, yeah, we're going to go on to worship and close our service. I hate my sin. And I am deeply saddened by the pain that it causes. Yet I know that no matter how hard I try, I'm going to do it again. But then, as I read this chapter, I realize that God can handle my sin. But more than that, he can actually redeem my sin and make it into something beautiful. Yes, I will continue to sin, but that sin is not an obstacle to God's plan. He knew I would sin, when I would sin, how often I would sin. And he has designed a plan to work through my sin in order to receive glory and add to my blessing. Isn't that amazing? As children of God who are seeking Jesus every day, we should work with him to enjoy more fully his righteousness. Let us continue to hope that our lives will more fully reflect Christ as we mature. But until we reach eternity, our sinful nature will continue to have its moments of victory. But even on those days, in the midst of sorrow over our sin, may we cling to this hope that even our sin can be used by God for his glory and for our blessing. Amen. Church, to stand and sing a couple songs in response. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you uh, for these real-life events of Abraham that we can look back on. And again, just like humanity, uh, the the concerns of humanity haven't changed in 4,000 years, the greater truth is that our God has never changed. And that you are still a God who redeems. You're still a God who can work within and around and through our sin. It's unbelievable. But Lord, we do, we still crave, we desire that righteousness, that it would be not just be something that is positional for us, but that we would actually get to enjoy that righteousness in our life. So we ask that you would help us to do that. Help us to have greater experiences with that righteousness in our life. But also, Lord, get us off the couch. Don't let us be snuggled up in a corner afraid and in despair because of our sin. Lord, that's exactly where Satan wants us. We are redeemed children of God. So help us to stand up and to get out there. And no matter how many times we fail to continue to rise up again and proclaim the good news of Jesus, to love those in our family, in our friendships, in our church, and in this world. Romans chapter 7. Who else can help us to put this into words than Paul? Verse 18 and following. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, It is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. 
So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. And God bless you, church. If you'd like prayer this morning, please come forward. We would love to pray for you for whatever uh, you would like this morning. God bless you. Have a great day.